back, everybody, to another episode of the Can of Things podcast. Today, I have my uncle Clay Winder on. He's a real estate agent and investor. Welcome to the show, Clay. Thanks for coming on my podcast, Clay. You are so welcome. Anytime. So tell us a little bit just about like your real estate background and how you got into it. Sure. So I got into real estate at 21 years old. I first was drawn to it because I wanted to be a real estate investor. And so I looked into... Uh, a class at UVU that was a real estate class with the intention of getting into real estate investing, but it happened to also be the same class that satisfied the hours to get real estate licensed in the state of Utah. So by the time I was done with that class, of course I fell in love with investing, but I also realized that I liked agency and being licensed and helping other people buy and sell real estate. So I decided to take the test and I got my real estate license at 21 and that was 14 years ago. And here I am. Been doing it ever since? <clears throat> yep, doing investing as well as doing the agency as the day job. So what do you define as investing? So I was most interested and still to this day am most interested in investing in long-term holds is how I describe it. I've done plenty of flips and, uh, and currently I'm doing some flips, but at the end of the day, my ultimate desire is to continue doing holds. And that's what I've always been drawn to is building long-term wealth through just holding real estate. Holding it and then renting it out to people? <clears throat> exactly. Okay. So yeah. how many do you have now? Um, it's kind of a loaded question because I have multifamily now. So I've got, uh, I've got 18 doors, but of course some of those are compiled of uh, some duplexes. I had a fourplex, but after I got the bullet hole and the graffiti and the hooker got beat up, I decided to sell it. Mm-hmm. And I uh, don't have that anymore. But in addition to those 18 residential doors, I have two commercial buildings, and, uh, and I've got under contract and under construction several more. In so, fact, just today I inked a contract to buy a fourplex in Provo. Oh, very nice. So I'm excited about that. But I'm selling a duplex to move my cash into that fourplex. Yeah, so I was wondering, how do you get enough cash to buy new ones? Because I mean, <clears throat> at this rate, you're making, you're buying one more than, like more than one each year. Right. Well, and that's a good question for a lot of people that are just starting out. And if anyone's listening to this doesn't have any and wants to start from ground zero, know that my heart goes out to you. It is the, the first real estate deal you do is always the hardest. It, it, it just gets easier from there. Not only easier because you get more knowledgeable, but it does get easier because you start to develop that nest egg and have that wealth. For the first one, I, uh, I'll just share my story as also kind of an example I, I wish more would follow. And that is at 21 years old, I bought a a condo, but with uh, a cousin and his dad, my uncle, co-signed on the loan. Um, I wouldn't have qualified at that time because I didn't have job history, um, but I had a little bit of cash. But we split that deal uh, three ways between the three of us, so I only had to come up with 33% of the down payment. And because we occupied it, our down payment was a conventional loan, which was 5%. Well, 5% on a little condo by UVU wasn't very much. I think it was right around 10 grand because each of us coughed up like 3,000 bucks. And I did have that. I had saved up enough. So that got me in on my first one. And then after a few years, I ended up actually buying my uncle out and buying my cousin Isaac out as well. And, and to this day, I still own that little condo. But for that very first deal, understanding two principles. Number one is that you can kind of cheat buying rental properties by occupying. Too often people think, oh, it's an investment property, 
So I'm, I just need to go buy a rental right on day one, rent it out to other people. But the secret to me getting most of my rentals on the early, in the early years, because I didn't have cash, I didn't have any money other than the money I was able to save, and that was I would occupy it. Remember the big difference is if you occupy, you only need 5% down for a conventional, which is the most common loan, but there's also FHA, which is 3.5%. Um, and there's even some conventionals that are 3%. They're a little trickier. Otherwise, if you don't occupy, it's 20% down. So if you occupy, you can make 5%. That would make it a lot easier to get your first place. So how long did it take you to get your your second place after buying the first one? Yep, until just one year. So I so when you buy a house and you commit, you, you sign a document that says that, that the exact language is actually that you intend to occupy as your primary residence for one year. Do you have to? Nobody polices it, but if the government are listening to this podcast, they would say be honest in, in your dealings with not just with right. fellow men, but with the, with the mortgage companies as well. Again, what is you intend to occupy it for a year? Uh, there's plenty of people that don't hit that year mark. They move out because it's not police. But my strategy was to, to, to live to that as much as I possibly could. So I bought that first condo uh, and I did intend to occupy it for a year, uh, but I ended up getting engaged and getting a house uh, like before that year was even up and buying a, a fixer-upper in West Valley, occupied that, lived there for a couple of years and bought another one. I have been pretty consistent at every year at the longest stretch, two years of buying a house and, and then fixing it up, getting, and then buying another one, backfilling that with renters and just leapfrogging almost all of my properties. I've only bought a, a couple of properties with the 20% down. And obviously at this point in my life, I've got to buy them all that way unless I'm going to occupy them. But those, the first 10 years of doing this from 21 years old to 30, which I had a goal to be a millionaire by the time I was 30, but I didn't quite make it. But that was through every year I was buying a house. Mm. And some of those were duplexes. My second one after that condo was a duplex. I lived in the upstairs, remodeled the whole thing, got an apartment in the basement, rented it out. What makes it easier to buy a house, your, your second house versus your first house? Um, knowledge, ability to get a loan, um, but at the end of the day, it is saving up that money. One thing that gets a little tricky is on that first one is in order to qualify for the second one, some banks require that you already have the first one rented before you can close on the loan. Mm. So there are, that's not every case by the way, and you can sometimes get around that by just showing a lease agreement, but you might have a situation where you got to make yourself homeless for a month because your renters took your spot before you can close on the next one. Mm, you might have to live in a motel for a month. You might, or your parents' couch or something. Yeah, mm. it happens, but that's not always the case. Um, it can get it can get a little, yeah, it can get a little tricky. But it seems to work. I mean, you did it ten times, and then you finally settled down somewhere. Yeah, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you another huge thing that, that changed my life forever. I, I come from a, not a poor family. I'd call it a middle class family, as you know, but a family that didn't have, uh, you know, an inheritance or trust fund or any cash like that. And uh, but I had a huge blessing that that truly changed my life forever. And that was, I had this idea. Uh, on on that second property, it needed an, it was a, a total it was a short sell, which means that they were selling it less than what they owed the bank. They were getting foreclosed on. Uh, this was in two thousand, gosh, what was it? Two thousand nine, I think it was maybe two thousand ten. Um, so it was the bottom of you know the worst of the recession. 
Um, but the house was hammered. I called it the Henry house only because the sellers had a cat named Henry and it peed on everything. Literally the whole house was just like <laughs> dripping of cat pee. And so we called it the Henry house. But what I did and what changed my life forever is I, I got this idea from somebody else. I was probably listening to a podcast or something. And they talked about hard money. Hard money is just not a normal mortgage. It's, it's a private person that lends money with private terms and you, you have an agreement, but at the end of the day, they're just, they just wire you money. And the idea that the podcast had gave me the idea and that was to ask if my dad would collateralize his primary residence and do a home equity line of credit. We call it a HELOC. A home equity line of credit against his home so that I could have essentially a really cheap uh, hard money loan. And my dad agreed to that. And so we went to Zion's bank and we got a $150,000 line of credit against his house and he trusted me. And I used that 150 to go buy this house. Now back then I bought this house for 112,000. Good luck trying to find, you, you can hardly find a double wide trailer for that right now. Yeah. But I found this Henry house, this cat peed junky house, bought it with that hard money for 112. And then I had that extra money, you know, that 38,000 left over to do the rehab. So I used every penny of that home equity line to remodel the house, and I did what's called the Burr method, the B-R-R-R. -R -R. And if you Google that or listen to other podcasts about that, it stands for Buy, Renovate, Rent, Refinance. So I bought it, I renovated it, and then I rented it essentially to myself upstairs, but then to some renters downstairs, and then I refinanced. And when I refinanced it, it appraised for, I think, 180, which means I paid my dad back in full, which is a little more than 180, because I got my dad paid back in full, and I created 20% equity. So at the end of the day, when I refinanced, I had zero dollars out of my pocket. And that was my wow. second real estate deal. Now I've rinsed and repeated the Burr method using my dad's HELOC like six times. They let you do that over and over again? Well, who's they? I guess the bank. Yeah, so it, it, absolutely, I mean, the Zions, the HELOC, they don't care what you use the money for because I, I have to pay interest. I borrowed 150 plus interest, mm -hmm. but that changed my life. And that's why. Like, even though you might not have an inheritance or you might not come from a, 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 you know, a rich family or you might not have, you know, daddy Warbucks or somebody that can loan right. you this money, if you can collateralize something or just have, you know, it costs more money, but just go out and actually get hard money, you know, from these private lenders, it's, it's, it's going to be more expensive than, than that arrangement. But to go out and get it, it takes a little bit of guts. But that Burr method is the secret to, like, gosh, I think I, like seven or eight of my properties at this point have been that Burr method. And that's why I say the biggest blessing in my real estate investment was just access to that money. That money alone like allowed me to do a lot more. Now, that being said, there's still plenty of properties that I moved into a junky, nasty house in Provo. I've moved into a, a, a nasty place in downtown Salt Lake. I've moved into American Fork has a junky house. And these hands right here have remodeled six Ikea kitchens now at this point, you know, assembling and doing that because I would move into these homes, I would gut them because I would kind of do the Burr method. I'd still get a conventional loan, 5% down, occupy, but then I would remodel the heck out of them and then go ahead and refinance them and then try to, and my goal would always, could I create that 20% equity so at the end of the day I could get that 5% cash out of the refi and go move on and do another one. How quick did you usually get that 20% equity? Well, luckily, I've been riding a wave on a lot of those. I mean, 2010, the bottom of the real estate market, and I still remember it from my real estate sales, was February of 2012. Up into February 2012, 
it was a seller's market. So I would I would meet with sellers and tell them, okay, do you have six months to wait? Because their buyers are so few and far between. And it was February 2012. I put a house up for sale, and I actually had not one but two buyers chasing the house at the same time, which I had never seen before in <laughs> years of real estate. Where of course now from 2012 to now 2020, nowadays. You know, 2020, 50% of every home that goes on for sale has multiple offers, so it's like commonplace now. But that yeah. was the shift. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. What changed in the last decade or so from that bottom of the barrel recession to now where every single house is like getting multiple offers? There's hardly anything on the market right now. Yeah, so inventory is an interesting thing uh, in, in Utah. Every market is supply and demand, and the real estate market right now is no different and the demand is high, and the supply isn't necessarily low. The challenge is the supply is equal. Like literally today, I just presented the numbers. It's, it's like equal to last year, like almost right on the nose. Mm. And so, but demand is much higher. And it's, it's created a very interesting problem because we have a supply inventory. And, you know, people would say, well, it'll, it'll take a pandemic to change this economy and to slow it down. Well, we just had a pandemic, and what happened? We had a bunch of buyers. We, 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 the buyers, actually, the demand stayed the same, but we had a bunch of sellers decide not to put their homes up for sale. So our inventory this spring was way less than last year, meaning the number of homes that went up for sale were way less, but our demand stayed, stayed pretty much the same. And so the government thought, oh, we need to stimulate the economy by lowering rates and like incentivizing buyers. That wasn't a problem. We need to incentivize builders or people to, you know, create inventory. We still haven't done that. Mm -hmm. Still to this day, you know, to this point, we still haven't created a lot of that inventory. And I will say this point, and this is the question I get asked the most in my as as a as a real estate broker, and that is just that general question. Well, gosh, prices are so high. Should I really buy or should I wait for the market to shift? Surely this should come crashing down. You know, that's a very common question I get asked all the time. And I'll share with you. The challenge with that simple of thinking is it's just not true, meaning the affordability rate is more important. Even though prices are high today, higher than last year, the affordability rate is actually technically better today than last year. And the affordability rate is does the average monthly payment for the average house, is that 25, 30% of the average income in the area? Does that make sense? So last year, it would have cost you maybe 30% of your monthly income to make your house payment. Well, this year, even though prices have gone up because interest rates have gone down so low, it's only, say, 25% of the average income to make your mortgage payment. So in that regard, it's actually less expensive to buy a home in 2020 than 2019, even though prices went up 9% in Utah County, 8% Utah-wide, uh, you know, Utah statewide. And that takes a little bit more complex thinking for people to realize that real estate is not about home prices as much as you think. And that was a huge shift for me over the years. I always thought, oh, it's always about price, price, price. But unless you're selling the properties after, price actually doesn't matter. It all, it, it all depends on your internal numbers. Meaning, does the rent cover the mortgage? Is the mortgage you know, only 25, maybe 30% of your income? Is that, you know, do the numbers work? And the honest truth is the numbers still absolutely work in 2020. And that's why I, bought, I wrote a contract on a fourplex today. And I've got other contracts out on other stuff that I'm doing now. Why are there more buyers than people selling now? If the selling rate is the same, but there's more buyers? or mm -hmm. So are like people still buying homes as much as they were? And is it just more now? 
Yeah, so there, there's it's our population growth. So one of the other stats that I shared in that presentation I did earlier today are the permits, the new construction permits happening. We are still building less homes than we need to to, to accommodate our household growth in Utah, meaning guys like you are, are growing up and, and right. buying houses. Um, there's marriages happening, and we have immigration. Utah's population is outgrowing our rate at which we're building homes, like by a dramatic uh, amount. And it's been like, like a decade of underbuilding our houses and overgrowth. And so at the beginning, it was okay because people were just jumping in basements and whatnot. But then you've seen there's so many apartment buildings. There's so you know all of that has exploded. But what we're seeing too is is the shift because those are all first-time home buyers that are driving the growth. And the days of like, because prices are so high, of buying that suburban classic single family home are quickly dwindling and dying out because the affordability right now is pushing down and driving condos and townhomes. Edge Homes is the biggest builder in Utah. Two years ago, they were 40% condos and townhomes and 60% single family home. Today I had them present and their numbers so far year to date, they are 70% townhomes and condos and only 30% single family homes. Wow. So there's a whole shift in real estate in general of like the American dream of owning like your home in the suburbs is shifting. And a lot of a lot of buyers now are completely okay with townhomes and condos. Well, whether they're okay with it or not might not be it might just be the fact that it's cheaper to buy a condo or townhome. Right. But regardless, they're okay with it because that's where the market's headed. And that's well, it's not headed there, it's already gotten there. And then you can see that just by looking at your windows here. I think part of the effect of that is just the geography of Utah and the geography of the fact we have mountains and a lake in between Absolutely. Utah County. Absolutely. We are landlocked. And land prices, of course, drive drive the whole conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, land it all starts with land prices, and it is so hard to get affordable land. And that just trickles right down to the end product. So right now, and, and land land's value is directly correlated to the density. So if it's a farmer's field and you can't do anything with it, that's the cheapest land you're going to find. If you can put one house on it, oh, then it's a little more valuable. If you can subdivide it into a suburban neighborhood with a handful of houses, it's more valuable. But boy, if you can get it all the way to the point where you can build a you know, high-rise with multiple apartments, mm -hmm. obviously that's the most valuable land. And so really the pinch comes down to not just affordable land, but what density will cities approve? And it's, and it's plaguing Utah right now that every city, the majority of cities, there's a few that are finally coming to their senses, but every city wants to not, has a not-in-my-backyard mentality. And I know you interviewed Mike with Mill Creek City yeah. and got some of those tips, but like that's there, there's in these, these really hard political conversations in these communities where the current residents are saying, oh, we don't want condos or townhomes or apartments mm -hmm. or anything in our neighborhood because then the traffic goes up and the hooligans will come into town and... But at the end of the day, where are these people supposed to go? We're landlocked, like you said. We have to increase density. And it's funny because a lot of the people who don't want this high-density housing, it's their kids who are the ones that are like, I don't have anywhere to rent because there's just it's way too expensive or there's nowhere to buy. So if they actually had that high density, it's like your kids are going to be the ones who are going to be using this stuff. Yeah, but a lot of those mentality, a lot of those... Th those opinions are very much saying, oh, we get it. They need high density, just not in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> go to Harriman. Go to, you know, the, in the Salt Lake Valley, it's the classic. The East just keeps saying, go in West. Well, guess what? Cities are, like, dominating right now. The West City, they're building like crazy because the East Cities have very much that attitude of we don't want 
gentrification and and in you know grow you know so which, infill projects it's a real problem which cities are growing or adding more high density housing in utah well it, ironically enough i mean there's we could get into a lot of that but the biggest thing that's kind of that's kind of ironic in my mind is if anyone's driving down i-15 they can see this and that is if you look at thanksgiving point there's like high rises everywhere yeah. Like every single one of those high rises, at least as of the recording of this podcast, all of them are office, yeah. like commercial buildings. Mm-hmm. They have some apartments planned, so we'll see them. But then go to downtown Salt Lake. There's a whole bunch of cranes and a whole bunch of high rises. Every one of those, well, the majority, I'm sure there's one, but like the majority of every high rise in downtown Salt Lake is residential. Oh, there so you it's go. like this really fascinating thing to see. Okay, there's some cities that are clearly pro like residential downtown Salt Lake is just is is fascinating and that's an amazing anomaly and it's fun to watch that but it's kind of you know and I'm not the expert on on commercial real estate but it is fascinating to see that the new downtown rising is Thanksgiving Point it's at the point of the mountain that's all the commercial building happening mm-hmm. but downtown Salt Lake is now the cool place to live in high density and there's a culture there that they have that no other city has that's our urban culture hmm. interesting so how did that happen like how did is that just the the market? Oh, okay. People wanted to live downtown and ride little scooters, and <laughs> uh, and I think we'll see some. Well, we have seen some of that in in the smaller markets like Provo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I you know I mean there's a lot to it, and, and you need to get the governor on your podcast. I'm sure he could talk <laughs> sure all, he could all about the tax bit. incentives. And Lehigh yeah. City has clearly done a good job attracting those businesses to create. Silicon Slopes, Bluffdale's on board, Draper's on board. I mean, they really have attracted some of the coolest companies on planet Earth right here to Utah. Yeah. But all the other surrounding cities are benefiting yeah. from that. And at the end of the day, to kind of circle the whole conversation, if you are a Utah, whether you're Utah or not, if you are interested in real estate investing, Utah really is an incredible place to invest. Just today I wrote an offer from a guy that lives in, in, in Palo Alto. He works at Google. He's got extra cash. And this is this will be his his multiple property that he's bought here in Utah with me because he doesn't want to invest there in California. He gets it. He gets that the tech companies and their growth here and the rental market is really really stable and healthy. And to be able to come into Utah and buy a townhome or something really slick for three hundred and fifty that would cost a million plus down in Palo Alto makes a lot of sense. And so again, back to if you are interested in buying real estate and holding. Buy Utah, buy local. I have people all the time who say, oh, you can buy houses on eBay in Detroit for like 10 grand. Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason it costs that. Right. But Utah, you, I, I believe in Utah. And there might be deals outside of Utah, I get that, that might have better numbers. But at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of value in keeping our dollars here. Yeah, <clears throat> and we're always growing. So what do you think the future of the Utah real estate market looks like? It's awesome. It really is. Everyone always asks me, you know, are, are there signs of the shift? Is it here yet? It definitely is not here yet. The signs aren't there. Again, it's supply and demand, and our demand is still high, and our supply is still low. Uh, but it's it's still challenging to get a mortgage, meaning those that have mortgages earned it. They put their down payments. Um, you know, we, we could see a shift. We should and will see a shift at some point. But it's, it's my experience, having gone through the 2007 to 2012 shift, that usually we see a lot of other markets get hit first. You'll see the West Coast and the East Coast will get sandwiched. You'll see it hit, you know, eventually trickle into the Phoenix, Las Vegas. It, we're usually a little bit delayed, so keep an eye on those markets. And right now the coasts are having some issues. 
Um, blame it on COVID, blame it on whatever. It actually has started shifting a little bit before COVID. Um, but they're just not like we've seen before. So I think the Utah market is healthy and I think you should be buying up real estate left and right. I really do. Find me a better investment property. I'm serious. Unless you are investing in a, in a, in a great idea startup company, you know, those are, those are like lottery tickets. So sure, that could be great. But when it comes to, when you see the turmoil of the stock market and you see the turmoil of, of some other securities and you know, mutual funds and stuff that's out there, find anything that, that beats real estate. Even if you take appreciation out of the equation, because you're never going to sell it, so you're never going to realize the appreciation. Even if you just consider the, the tiny little cash flow, which is the least important, but if you consider the tax benefits and the debt reduction, every month that renter makes a payment, they're paying down your debt. When you factor those into an equation, real estate beats all. Yeah, it's crazy, because I just bought a condo for 242000 last September is when I signed for it. And then you just told me the other day that someone just bought another condo a little bit north of here, same exact one, for fifty thousand more, almost three hundred thousand. That's crazy, like that much growth. It's crazy and it's scary it's because that. Scary. You remember, I, I the quote I told you earlier is Utah County last year was nine percent appreciation. Yeah. What you just described is like twenty percent or whatever <laughs> if you do the math on it. So that is that's not just crazy. It is a little bit scary because that's not sustainable. But at the same time. That's the, that's the result of, of the 2020 condos didn't come up for sale. People, whether they hunkered down for COVID or whatnot, the supply just never showed up like it did last year. Mm -hmm. And so everybody had no other choice but to run to the new construction. And you are now the beneficiary of all of those buyers having a feeding frenzy, bidding war, and driving prices up to 50 grand more than you paid in in. 10 months? What is that? 10 months? Yeah. 50, I mean, that's, that's just nuts. It's bonkers. So what's my next move here then? Since I have already some equity in my place, how do I go from where I am now to buying this second property? Yeah, there's two things. So quickly, people would want to just immediately say, well, I'm going to roll the equity and refinance and pull out that money you have in there. I would challenge you not to. I would keep it there, if anything else, just to protect your numbers and don't incur the cost of refinancing. Um, the best bet you have is simply save up that 5% for the next one. Do you have the ability each month to save up enough where you can say, hey, my next one, whether it's a condo or a townhome, something like that, you know, I've got to save up that 5%, 300 grand-ish, whatever. Can I save up 15 grand in the next 15 months? And if, and if that's the case, then that's the route to go. Save up that money. Now, if it can't work that way, the nice thing with, with writing a wave like I described is you can refinance and pull that cash out, and yeah, you could have cash to do that. I always just like having a little bit of conservative protection on, on maintaining equity and properties, um, and just you know protecting that amortization schedule so that I can chip away at the loan and get my loan balance paid down and actually build that wealth. At the end of the day, my, my, my mission statement, literally the mission statement on the wall in my office uh, for my real estate sales business is to help those around me build legacy wealth through real estate. And I have that mission statement because it has been so effective and, and, and impressive just on, on what it's, my own portfolio has done. And it's not because I'm that smart. It's because I rode a wave and I just had the guts to go out and buy a few properties. But now it's really starting to snowball into, into some really fun strategies. That fourplex I'm buying right now is, is a lateral move for me, meaning I'm selling that property I described to you that I used my dad's money, property number two. 
but I did a little apartment in the basement, the little junkie Henry house, the cat pee house. I'm selling that right now. And it's emotional for me to yeah. sell it because it was a year of my life of like me doing the work. But it's been, what is that, nine years now? I mean, it's 2000, no, it's 10 years. 2010 is when I bought it. It's been 10 years and I'm now selling that house. I'm cashing out, cashing out about 225,000 to put in a 1031 exchange so I don't get hit with the capital gains tax. But then in the same week that I get that under contract, I get this fourplex that's worth about 800,000 is, is what I'm buying it for. But the cash down needed for that between the 20% down and all that is ironically 225,000. Oh, so I took perfect. that as a sign. Yeah. But what I'm doing is it's no money out of my pocket. It's a lateral move, pulling out the 225 out of this home that I've ridden for the last 10 years, sticking it in the fourplex. But now I have instead of a 300 whatever thousand dollar you know, old home in the suburbs is into a brand new construction Provo BYU housing fourplex mm. that's worth 800 and now appreciating. Same rate, but because it's a bigger asset, more wealth. Mm. So those sense. are the fun decisions that mm -hmm. you can start to make after you've got your little nest egg. It's that snowball. It just starts to roll and get bigger and bigger. And someday, hopefully, I'm 1031 exchanging several properties into apartment buildings or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, I think that's pretty much all the questions I have for you. So thanks again for coming on my podcast. Hey, you got it. Let me know if you have any other questions.